The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. All right, would you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. We've been looking at the parables of the kingdom in this chapter, and we have said a few times over our study of this that the word parable means to lay alongside And parables are essentially earthly stories laid aside spiritual truths. A parable is a story that has been taken from this life and uses principles of this life that is then used to teach and communicate spiritual realities in a way that they're more easy to understand. These are what parables are. We've been looking at these parables in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus is describing for us what the characteristics of this kingdom age will be like, this mystery form of this kingdom age. We've said already that this kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament was clearly known by Old Testament believers. They were looking forward to the arrival of the Messiah and the arrival of his kingdom And yet what was not known was that the king would be rejected. And because the king was rejected, the kingdom then was postponed. And so this was a mystery in the Old Testament. It was not known that there would be a gap between two comings of Christ, his first and his second coming. We are living in that gap. We have been now for 2,000 years. And so the question is, what is the nature of this kingdom between the two comings of Jesus. We've said that parables serve two purposes. They serve to conceal the truth and to reveal the truth. They conceal it from those that have rejected Christ and his message, and they reveal the truth to those to whom Jesus wants to reveal it. We've seen two parables already in this chapter, the parable of soils, where Jesus describes for us the responses to his message in this mystery form of the kingdom. There will be most who reject it and a few who accept it. That's reflected in the parable of the good soil. And then we saw last week the parable of the tares, that there will be believers and unbelievers who exist side by side in this mystery form of the kingdom. That in this inter-advent age, there will be believers living right alongside the sons of the devil, and they will not be separated until the end of the age. So we've seen that there will be those who reject, and Satan is active, and evil is present, and the devil will sow his children in this world. And so all of that raises an important question. The question in the minds of the disciples would have been, well, if all that's true, if Satan is still ruling and reigning in this world in a sense, and evil is going to prevail, and there will be many who reject, then then what is going to happen to the kingdom in this age before Jesus returns? What is the nature of this kingdom going to be like? Is Satan going to win? Is evil going to prevail? Or will Christ's kingdom prevail? Or will it ultimately fall fall and fail? These are the questions that they're asking. 
And it's natural for them, of course, to be asking these questions. Put yourself for just a moment in the disciples' shoes. It's just you and Jesus. And you've been with him now for months as he's been proclaiming the truth and most have been stiff-arming the truth and rejecting it and not wanting anything to do with it to the point that in Matthew chapter 12, the Jewish leaders stand up and officially reject him as the Messiah. The kingdom is now postponed. They are pretty much the only followers of Christ at this moment. And the question in their minds would have been, is this kingdom going to progress? Is it going to come to something? This small little thing that Jesus is bringing in, this kingdom, this this age where there will be believers who follow Christ, is this going to come of something or is it ultimately just going to fail? This is the question in their minds And this is the question that Jesus addresses in the next two parables. We're going to look this morning at the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And these two parables go together. They are essentially parables which teach the same realities. They teach the same truths. Their message is essentially the same. And so they're a pair. They go together. And their point is this. The kingdom will prevail. Christ will succeed, his kingdom will come, evil will be destroyed, Jesus will reign, it will prosper, it will triumph, and Christianity will win in the end. That's the message of these two parables, and they both proclaim that message, slightly different emphasis, but they're both proclaiming the same truth. And as I said, Jesus needed to address this because this was on their minds, this was in their hearts, particularly because the Old Testament, listen carefully, the Old Testament prophesied that when the king and the kingdom came, it would come abruptly and it would be a worldwide kingdom. Listen to some of these verses from the Old Testament. Psalm 72, verse 8 says, speaking of the Messiah, may he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is what they were expecting, a worldwide kingdom. When he comes, there's going to be a worldwide kingdom kingdom. Daniel 2.44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Listen to Zechariah 14, verse 9. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. So you hear what this is spoken of in the Old Testament. When the king comes, he's going to establish his kingdom, and it's going to be a worldwide kingdom. It's going to go from sea to sea and shore to shore. This is what they were expecting. And by the way, that's going to happen. That day is coming. It's not here yet. Jesus is not ruling and reigning on David's throne. He has not set up his earthly kingdom. We still await that day when he comes to do that. And when he does, it will be a worldwide kingdom extending from sea to sea. But that's not the case yet. And that wasn't the case then when Jesus was speaking about these things. Because of the postponement of the kingdom, the disciples needed to understand it's going to start small. It's going to start very small and seemingly be very insignificant. 
but it's going to grow. And it's going to progress. And it's going to increase. And it's going to gain influence. That's what they needed to hear because their expectations were something otherwise. And this would have been a massive encouragement for them to hear that this small, tiny, little thing that Jesus was starting with them and through them was going to increase. We need to hear this today. And I know you need to hear this today. Because I need to hear this today. Because let's just be honest, when we look around us, and we look at the world around us, and the world in which we live, and we look at the state in which we are living in this present age, all of us at time to time ask ourselves the question, is the gospel prevailing in this world or not? I mean, we're watching a society degrade right before our eyes. We're watching a nation implode right before our eyes. We're watching churches close their doors. There's people who are seemingly uninterested in spiritual things, indifferent to the things of the Lord, and we're presenting the gospel, and we're praying for gospel opportunities, and so many reject it. Many have said that we are now living in a post-Christian era, where for the most part, Christianity has been deemed irrelevant. Evil seems to be winning. The wicked seem to be prospering. Satan and the world seem to be triumphing. If you watch the news and you flood your mind with that, you come away with that conclusion. So you need to hear this. You need to hear that the kingdom, though seemingly insignificant, though small in comparison to the world, is progressing, it is moving forward, and it is powerfully going to influence this world as it is doing even to this day. This is what we learn in verses 31 to 35. Two parables, parable of the mustard seed and parable of the leaven. And interestingly, there's no interpretation to these. He's interpreted the parable of the soils for us. He's interpreted the parable of the tares for us. He's not going to interpret the rest of these parables for us. And there's a reason for that. I believe the reason for this is because at this point, the disciples are starting to catch on. He's given them a parable and its interpretation, another parable, its interpretation. They're starting to get it. They're starting to gather what he's doing and and where he's going with this. They're starting to discern what Jesus was doing. They've caught on to his method, we could say. And so this one, they don't need an interpretation for. It's pretty straightforward. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you the explanation of these parables, and then I want to look at the implication of these parables. Two points, very simple. First, we're just going to say, what do the parables say? That's the explanation of them. And then we're going to look, number two, at the implications of that. So let's look at first number one is the explanation of these two parables. We're just going to walk through them. We're going to explain the little details of these parables, and then we're going to draw in point number two, the implications of that. I want you to notice that in the beginning of both of these parables, he begins the same way. Verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like. Then verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like. He's comparing the kingdom to something. And if I were Jesus, I'd probably choose some 
grand and big and noble thing to compare this to, like the Rocky Mountains or the Pacific Ocean or something that's massive, the universe that is so vast and so big and so glorious, and that's not what he does here. He chooses something that's very tiny. Two things that are, that are very small. And he says, that's what my kingdom is like. It's like a mustard seed. Read verses 31 and 32 with me. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field and this is smaller than all other seeds but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. Here we have another story of a farmer sowing seeds. He uses the figure of planting. We saw that in the first parable, and now we see the same thing in the, we saw it in the second parable. Now we see the same thing in the third parable. He's using an analogy that they clearly would have understood. And he says this kingdom, this mystery form of the kingdom is like a mustard seed, a mustard plant. It's a really common plant of that day. They would have understood it. There were probably mustard plants all around them as he was even saying this. And notice verse 32. He says that the mustard seed is smaller than all other seeds. And it grows into a tree large enough for birds to sit in it. Now, let me say a couple things before I go any further. Right here, you have, for critics of the Bible, a seemingly contradictory statement filled with error, which critics will latch onto and say, see, you can't trust the Bible. It's full of problems, it's full of contradictions, and it's full of errors. Maybe you've had conversations with people who deny the veracity of Scripture, and they just say, I don't believe that stuff because the Bible's all, all baloney anyway. It's full of problems, and it's full of errors, and they maybe have taken you to this passage. And they said, look, Jesus can't even get it right. Mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the world. We all know that. Everybody knows that. Ah, oh, but hold your horses. Let's talk about this for a moment. There's two problems that the critics have. First is the size of the seed, and then secondly is the size of the plant after it's grown. So let's think about each one of these. First, first problem they have is that they would say that this mustard seed is, is not the smallest of all seeds in the world. In fact, there are other seeds much smaller than that, like the orchid seed or seeds of the field which produce flowers or weeds. And you know what? They're right. There are other seeds that are smaller than this. But how would we respond to that? How, how do we know that this is not an error? Well, the word smaller in verse 32, microteron, can actually mean smaller or of the smallest. So Jesus is not saying this is the smallest known seed in the entire world. No, he's saying of the seeds, this is one of the smallest. And probably even more important, we know what category of seeds he has in mind. Look at verse 32, keep reading. When it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants. 
So what category of seeds does Jesus have in mind? He has in mind garden seeds, seeds that would be planted in the field or in the garden to produce a crop, to produce food. It was an agricultural seed. It was a seed that was cultivated for the purpose of creating crops, bringing in food. And if you look at that category of seeds, this is clearly the smallest of all of them. You look at wheat seeds and barley seeds and bean seeds and all other seeds that you might plant in a garden in that day. Clearly, this seed of the mustard plant is smaller than all of those. So he uh, was very clear. And the people would have understood that there's no contradiction here. There's no error here, as critics of the Bible seek to point out today. Another issue that they would point out is the fact that it grew into a tree. And they would say, well, this clearly doesn't do that. The mustard plant is a bush. It doesn't grow into a tree. And in a sense, they're right. All many varieties of mustard plants do grow rather small. But there are mustard plants in Palestine that grow very large, 12 to 15 feet. In some cases, 20 to 30 feet so that it can be considered a tree. So again, Jesus is not lying here. There are many cases where these trees, these bushes grow into trees that have branches that can support birds and house them. And so he's not lying. He's not being deceptive in, in any way. And if you've ever grown a garden, you know that a 15-foot pla- fo- tall plant is a pretty good-sized plant. So there's no errors here. This little mustard seed hits the ground, germinates, starts growing, and it grows into something so large, verse 32 says that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. Some have said that the birds here represent unbelievers. They would say that this is clear evidence that there will be unbelievers in the kingdom, there will be evil in the kingdom, Satan's children will be in this kingdom, and certainly they're reading from the previous parables, the fact that there will be many who reject the gospel, there will be seeds and sons of the devil who are sown right next to sons of the kingdom, and so clearly those things are true, but I don't think in this case the birds are indicative of unbelievers. I think he's simply just saying this thing starts really small and grows really big to the point that uh, birds can make nests in it and birds can find shade and shelter from the heat of the sun and the storms of the day. I think this is the case because there's Old Testament precedent for this. Go back to Daniel chapter 4. Hold your finger here, Matthew 13. Turn back in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4, right after Ezekiel. And I want you to notice that this was not the first time this analogy was used Daniel chapter 4, you remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and uh, this was his dream involving a tree that became very large. Notice in Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 10, Nebuchadnezzar says, These were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Verse 11, the tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. 
How big was this? And all living creatures fed themselves from it. What does it mean? Skip down to verse 20. Daniel interprets the dream. And he says in verse 20, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. What's the picture here? It's the same picture. There's going to be a kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be the ruler of it, and your kingdom's going to grow big, so big that the beasts of the field can find shelter in it and the birds of the sky can nest in it. That's the idea. Turn back a couple other pages. Go back to Ezekiel 31. You're in Daniel. Just turn back a few pages to the left. Go to Ezekiel 31. And I want you to notice another illustration of the same kind of idea. Here it's Assyria. In the first case it was Babylon. Here it's Assyria. Ezekiel 31, starting in verse 3. Assyria is being warned Verse 3, behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high, and its top was among the clouds, and the waters made it grow, the deep made it high. With its rivers, it continually extended all around its planting place and set out its channels to all the trees of the field. Verse 5, therefore, its height was loftier than all the trees of the field, and its boughs became many, and its branches long because of many waters as it spread them out. Then notice verse 6, all the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all great nations lived under its shade. A big tree representing a big nation. Now come back to Matthew chapter 13. I think this is what Jesus is talking about. The birds are not evil. The birds just indicate the fact that there's a tree and it's growing and it's growing large enough to house them. And that's the idea. This kingdom is going to start very small. In fact, very tiny. The mustard seed is so small you can barely see it. And it's going to grow into such a big thing. And the birds will nest in it. I'm going to come back and say more about it in just a moment, but that's the idea. Something small grows and becomes very big. Come down now to verse 33. Let me explain the parable of the leaven to you. Same idea. He spoke another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. What's leaven? Yeast. But it's not just yeast, it's actually the, the dough that has the yeast in it. So, a little slight distinction there. It is yeast, but it is actually the dough that the yeast is in. And so, if you know anything about biblical times, you know that back then they would bake bread and then a woman would leave out a little piece of the dough from that bread that had the leaven or the yeast in it. And then she would bake the bread, but then in order to make the next day's bread, or a few days later, she would 
bake a new batch and put in the old leaven from the previous batch to have it permeate the new batch. I was reading this week, it was customary for a Jewish girl to receive from her mother a piece of leavened dough as a wedding present. So you would be getting married, your mom would give you as a present on your wedding day a piece of leavened dough. It represented the household she grew up in, and it, she would carry that over into her household as she was about to establish it. And then, in a sense, all the bread that she would bake from that day forward would come from the household that she grew up in. It was a perpetuating thing as leavened dough was added to subsequent batches and enabled it to grow and expand. That's the idea. That, that's the imagery that Jesus has here. And again, some would point to this as evil, that Jesus is teaching the fact that that there's going to be evil in the kingdom. Just like they think the birds are indicative of evil in the kingdom, some would say that this leaven is indicative of evil in the kingdom. And the reason that they would say this is because in many cases, leaven is used as an illustration of evil. Listen to a few of these texts. Matthew 16 and verse Six, Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then verse 12 in that same chapter, then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So in some cases, Jesus uses this imagery of yeast and leaven as an illustration of, of an evil influence. There's probably one other you're familiar with over in 1 Corinthians chapter Five, remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. They had a sinning man in their midst and they weren't dealing with it. And so he says to them, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? He was essentially saying, you, you've got leaven in your midst. You've got this evil influence in your midst and you need to remove it. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as, as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, clean out that leaven. Practice church discipline. Lovingly reprove the person who is unrepentant in their sin. Because if you don't, it's going to affect the whole church. The goal is not to hurt them or to harm them. It's to restore them. That's what church discipline does. So, so in many cases, people will look at the use of leaven in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They will see its association with evil. And they will assume that the same meaning is right here. The assumption is that Jesus is saying there's going to be evil right next to good in the kingdom. And I don't think that's the case. I get why they say it. Obviously, we've seen already in our study of the parables that there's going to be many who reject the gospel and sons of the devil are going to grow up right next to sons of the king. We're going to see in a couple weeks in the parable of the dragnet that there's going to be bad fish as well as good fish in the same net. So I get why they say it, but I don't think that's what he means here. 
I think his point is what leaven does. Not that leaven is evil, but that what leaven does, what does it do? It permeates the whole lump. Ladies, you know this. You, you, you make sourdough bread or that, what is that called? Amish friendship bread? I don't, I don't know this stuff, but I've seen you make that kind of thing, and it's marvelous. Thank you for making it, by the way. It ministers to my soul. But... <laughs> What does it do? You, you take a little starter, you take something from the previous batch and you put it in the new batch and you let it sit and you let it ferment and you let it kind of permeate the whole thing, the whole lump. That's the idea. There's going to be this tiny amount of leaven that eventually over time is going to infiltrate and permeate in an irreversible fashion, a process. Once it's begun, you can't interrupt it, you can't stop it. It's going to go and it's going to permeate the entire dough. Notice verse 33. It says, The woman took and hid this leaven in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. You want to know how much three pecks of flour is? 60 pounds. It's a lot of cookies. It's a lot of bread. You can take a little tiny bit of leaven and you can put it in 60 pounds of flour and it's going to permeate the whole thing. But how does it do that? Look at verse 33, it's got to be hid in the flour. It's got to be put right into the dough. It's got to be big, put right in. It's got to be a part of that. It's got to penetrate it, and it's got to permeate it, and it's got to be put right into the very part of that dough where it can influence the whole thing and permeate the whole thing and have influence over the whole thing. That's the idea. So those are the parables. A tiny little seed is going to start insignificant and it's going to grow and become this massive thing. And a little bit of leavened dough put into a new batch of dough is going to permeate the whole dough. Something small Become something big. That's what the parables are saying. Now, what do they mean? We'll spend the rest of our time this morning on the implications of this. This is point number two the implication of the parables. And I want to give you four implications. Four things that we need to understand, having now comprehended what Jesus is saying in these parables, four implications that we're going to see. Number one, or first letter A, is the kingdom starts small, but expands greatly. Pretty obvious that this is going to be the first one, because that's what we've just been saying. The kingdom starts very small, but it grows and expands very greatly. This is his point. Christ's kingdom is going to come. It's going to arrive. It's been postponed, 
but it's still, in a sense, begun. And so because it's begun, it's here. It's going to look very tiny. It's going to look unnoticeable at first. It's even going to be disdained and rejected by many at first, which is what we've seen, haven't we? But it's going to grow. It's going to become triumphant. It's going to become large. It's going to become influential. This is what the kingdom of the mustard seed or the parable of the mustard seed tells us. Listen to Leon Morris. He says, the kingdom may be considered insignificant in its beginnings and was doubtless despised by many in Jesus' day because of this. But in the end, its growth would be extensive. It would be a very great kingdom indeed. There's also the thought of the continuity between the seed and the grown plant. It is from the mustard seed and that seed only that the mustard seed grew So it is from Jesus and his little band that the mighty kingdom of heaven would emerge. Think with me for just a moment. Back 2,000 years to how this whole thing started. It started with a baby in a manger. In Bethlehem, the God-man, in the form of a little child, arrived in this world, and none of the Jewish elite knew anything about it, no fanfare, no celebration, grows up in Galilee, in Nazareth, a despised city. Remember what Nathaniel said to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus grows up there, this nondescript little village away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem. He chooses 12 men. Fishermen. Common, ordinary, non-educated men. One was even a tax collector. Not the kind of men that you would start a worldwide movement with. They were timid, they were fearful, they were prideful. One departs, rejects him. It's Jesus and 11 men. That's how this whole thing started. He dies. He's raised back to life. He ascends back to heaven. And Acts chapter 1 tells us there's 120 people. 120 people. You're going to start a worldwide movement, a kingdom with 120 people? Acts 2 happens. Spirit is given. Peter preaches such a powerful message that 3,000 people come to Christ. Acts chapter 4 says that number grows to 5,000, starting to become something. Jewish leaders take note of this, and they arrest Peter and John and throw them into jail, and they say, so it will not spread any further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. They throw them into prison. They're released, and what do they do? They keep on speaking. Acts chapter 5, they arrest the apostles. 
An angel opens the doors and they keep on teaching and preaching. They try to shut it down in Acts 7 by killing Stephen. Stoning him to death. What happens? Very next chapter, Acts chapter 8. Persecution causes believers to scatter. And what happens when you kick the coals out from a dying campfire? Catches fire to other things around it. Persecution ignites more gospel growth as the gospel goes forth as the scattered believers take it with them. Some estimate at some point in the church in Jerusalem it reached 20,000 people. By the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, it was recorded the whole world had heard the gospel and this world was turned upside down by the disciples. Eleven men, Jesus, Today you're sitting here as a result of a worldwide movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It started small, but has gone around the globe. What an encouragement, despite its insignificant beginnings. This little tiny thing that was ignited 2,000 years ago has now erupted into a worldwide gospel movement of churches and people loving and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the parable of the mustard seed. And then come down to, again to the parable of the leaven. What's, what's its point? It's essentially the same thing. It starts little small. And it has a pervading influence. It, it seeps into everything. It creeps into everything. There's going to be growth and progress and power behind this gospel influence. And it may look subtle and it may look insignificant, but there's going to be a dramatically significant growth in God's kingdom in this mystery age. And it's going to be working from the inside out as the gospel goes and transforms hearts. D.A. Carson says, quote, if there's any distinction between this parable and the last one, speaking of the leaven compared to the mustard seed, he says it is that the mustard seed suggests extensive growth and the yeast intensive transformation. The yeast doesn't grow, but it permeates. In both parables, it is clear that at present the kingdom of heaven operates, not apocalyptically, but quietly and from small beginnings. Friends, this is how God works. Please, please understand this. He doesn't work through big, grand events, typically. He doesn't work through huge displays on the ecclesiological scale. No, what does he do? He works through individual people in small ways, and that growth begins to permeate and perpetuate. I think about the fact that Many attempts have been made to snuff this whole thing out, right? Jewish leaders tried to shut this thing down in the very first days of the church. And then you look in the first couple centuries of the church, the whole Roman government tried to shut these things down. Emperors and Caesars and all the persecution that came from them. Think of Nero and what he did to Christians to try to shut this thing down. Then come to the Protestant Reformation and John Huss William Tyndale, all the Marian martyrs, they tried to shut this whole thing down. And what happens? It just keeps growing and progressing and permeating and increasing. You can't stamp this out because the gospel transforms hearts and lives. And that's why you can go to nearly any corner of the globe 
and you can find believers. Not everywhere. It's why we send missionaries. It's why the gospel needs to go forth. But I've been in Russia, in Siberia, in the middle of February, which is not a great time to go to Siberia. <laughs> gospel loving believers. Taught in Bible institutes in Kazakhstan and Venezuela and Spain, believers. Croatia, believers. Malawi, believers. Bob and I were just in Finland. Church in Finland. This is what the gospel does. It arrests hearts, changes lives, brings people in, and it begins to grow and flourish and develop and progress. I even look at our church. Look at Maranatha Bible Church, planted 60 years ago. Just a few people started here in Comstock Park in that little house over there. What have we done over the years? Been here almost 20 years. What have we been doing for 20 years? Preaching the word, shepherding God's people, proclaiming the gospel. Look what God's doing. Look at all the members that came, joined us last week. Look at the baptisms we're going to see in just a couple Sundays. Incredible. You guys know this about our church. We're not a mega church. We're not flashy. We don't have lights and smoke and big programs and all kinds of fancy kind of things that draw. You know what it is? It's the faithful preaching, teaching of the word, shepherding of God's people. And when you get a part of that, you've got to, you want to be a part of it. And you get sucked into that and the gospel begins to transform your life and you see what it does in your life and you want it to be done to the same people in your life that you want to see them saved. That's why we say around here, we think in weeks, I'm sorry, we don't think in weeks, months, or years, we think in decades. We don't think about what's going to happen in, in a few weeks or a couple months down the road. We think in decades because that's how the gospel works. Slow, small, but powerful over time. This ought to encourage your hearts. You ought to be encouraged by this, that we're watching before our very eyes something that began 2,000 years ago. And we're watching the gospel spread. We're watching the kingdom grow. We're watching the influence increase. We're watching the progress of the gospel continue to draw in others. This is what Jesus meant by the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. This is exactly what he said would happen. And we're watching it before our very eyes. And so, beloved, be encouraged. Turn off Fox News. And trust what Jesus said about this kingdom. Be a part of it. Proclaim his truth and watch what he does. By the way, I don't think this is, this is an argument for post-millennialism. Some would say, well, yeah, clearly the, the world's going to keep getting better and better and better and better until Jesus comes. That's post-millennialism. That's not, I believe, what Jesus is teaching. The world's actually going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. But in the midst of that worsening world, the gospel's going to pervade and the gospel's going to change and the kingdom's going to grow. That's implication number one. Letter B. The second one is that kingdom expansion begins from within. Kingdom expansion begins from within. Again, notice verse 33. 
where he says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. Where, where did that leaven go? It went right into the heart of the new batch of the dough, right in the middle of it, right in the center. It was hid in the very new dough so that it could permeate and influence and transform from the inside out. And beloved, this is how God works. He puts believers right in the middle of the world. We're not to be of the world, but we're certainly in the world. And the reason that we're to be in the world is because that's the only way the gospel can reach and affect the world. It's why when God saves you, he doesn't immediately take you to heaven. He wants you here. He keeps us here because we can have gospel influence. He can use us and he can work through us. We can be salt and we can be light. And this is what he wants to happen as he leaves us in this world where we can have a permeating influence. Works from within. One writer says, when the kingdom of heaven is faithfully reflected, In the lives of believers, its influence in the world is pervasive and positive. The life of Christ within believers is spiritual and moral leavening in the world. A Christian does not have to be a national leader, a famous entertainer, or a sports figure to influence the world for his Lord. It is the power of God's kingdom within a believer that makes his witness effective, and that is the influence on the world that Christians should seek to have. There's a reason he doesn't call everybody to public, full-time vocational ministry. You know why? Because he wants Christians out in the workplace. He wants Christians in families. He wants Christians in neighborhoods. And he wants that influence to leak out and spill over into the world around us. So, if you find yourself the only believer in your family, rejoice. If you find yourself to be the only believer in your neighborhood, rejoice. Maybe you're the only believer at your workplace. You have an opportunity for the Lord to work in and through you. You get to be a gospel influence. You get to be part of the permeating effect that the Lord intends for for his truth to take place in this world. God doesn't want us to be rabbit hole Christians, right? Right? We pop our heads up, we look around for the nearest Christian or church or group and we scurry over to that group of Christians and we go back down in the hole and we look our head up again and we scurry to the next. No, he wants us in the world, not influenced by the world, but he wants us to be an influencing, sanctifying, transformative power and force in this world as he uses us to draw others to Christ. Thirdly, A third implication is that kingdom expansion occurs by means. Kingdom expansion occurs by means. And what I mean by that is that God spreads this kingdom out and he causes it to grow and and influence and progress through means. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just snap of the fingers and it happens. No, he works through means to spread this gospel influence. And what are some of those means? Obviously, prayer. As we pray, the Lord will then send workers into the harvest and he uses our prayers as the means by which he opens up 
doors for the gospel. This is Colossians 4.3. Paul says, pray with me that God would open up to us a door for the word. So prayer is one of the means. So is the proclamation of the word. Preaching. Teaching. Gospel sharing. Romans 10 says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. People have to hear the word of Christ in order to be saved. So you can see how he's doing this. He's using the means to accomplish his purposes. There are people in your life that he has sent into your life who don't know Christ and you have the truth and he wants you to proclaim that truth. Some have said, well, I just live the gospel. Well, according to Romans 10, you have to speak the gospel. It's good to live the gospel. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to speak the gospel. You have to tell them the truth of the gospel. So friends, do you see how clarifying this is as to what do we do? It's really simple. Our mission is pretty clear. We're to rub shoulders with the lost. We're to proclaim the truth to the lost. We're to be those who look at our sphere of influence whom the Lord has given to us, where he's placed us, and we're to look at those people whom we rub shoulders with, and we're going to say, okay, who has God entrusted to me? Who are my family? Who are my friends? Who are the coworkers? Who are the people that the Lord has put in my influence? That I should be praying for and lovingly caring by sharing the truth with them. And I promise you, when you do that, The gospel will advance. People will be saved because Jesus promises it. Last, final lesson is that letter D, the ever-expanding kingdom brings blessings. The ever-expanding kingdom brings Blessings. Go back to the first parable, the parable of the mustard seed. What happened to those birds? Those birds found sanctuary. They found rest. They found a place where they could nest. They found safety from the storms. They found protection from the heat of the sun. They were able there to nurture and provide for their young. There's blessing there. There's protection there. There's safety there. There's, there's joy that comes from that. One writer says, when Christians live in obedience to the Lord, they are blessings to those around them. Individual believers become the source of benediction to the nations. And with all their faults, those nations of the world who've been so influenced and who have recognized God's sovereignty and have sought to build their laws and standards of living on his word have proved a blessing to the rest of the world in economic, legal, cultural, and social ways, as well as spiritual and moral. It is from the teachings of Scripture through Christian witness that high standards of education, justice, the dignity of women, the rights of children, prison reform, and countless other social benefits have come. So whenever the gospel of the kingdom is faithfully preached and practiced, all the world benefits. And haven't we seen that in our country? This country was founded, in a sense, on some form of biblical principles. And for over 200 years, this nation has reaped the blessings of that. And that's why it's so hard to see our nation turning its back on God. There's blessing that spill over onto people. Proverbs 14.34 says, righteousness exalts a nation. 
And so when the kingdom is impacting a society, when king, the kingdom is impacting a family, even if those people don't embrace Christ, there are spiritual blessings that flow to them. Paul even alluded to this in families, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. He says, the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. He's saying that when there's a believer and an unbeliever in a marriage, the presence of the believing spouse becomes a vehicle of God's blessing upon that family. And so kingdom benefits in a sense, flow to those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and it spills over onto those who don't. You gotta be encouraged. Yeah, our world is in a bad place. Our society is going down the tubes. Sexual, sexual revolution has had its way in our Country, people are turning their back on Christ. The gospel is being rejected. But in the midst of all of that, God is drawing, God is saving, God is rescuing, His kingdom is advancing. And we get to be a part of that. I don't know about you, but there's nothing more exciting than that. That ought to excite your hearts as you watch our nation in a moral freefall, and yet we get to be the people who are lights in this dark world. We get to be a part of the redeeming influence in this culture. We're, we're those that the Lord uses to proclaim the gospel and be a part of his kingdom advancing. So be encouraged. This is what he's doing. Notice how he closes, verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Do you realize we're watching things right now that were hidden before the foundation of the world? A kingdom advancing, the gospel changing hearts, Progress being made through this thing that was started so small 2,000 years ago. And we get to be a part of it. So rejoice. Be encouraged. And watch what the Lord does. Father, we thank you for these realities. Thank you for the encouragement that this brings to us, Lord, as we watch a lost and dying world imploding as we watch many reject the gospel, as we see many turning their backs on Christ and spiritual things, or what a confidence it is to us, what a joy it is, what an encouragement it is to us to, to know that the work of your spirit through your word in this kingdom is still advancing. So Lord, let us not lose sight of that. Let us not become despairing. Let us not fix our eyes on this world let us fix our eyes on Christ and his advancing kingdom. And Lord, would you give us gospel opportunities? Would you use this people, us as a church, 
to go out, leave this building, leave these doors, and go into the world and be a gospel influence for the cause of Christ. And may you draw others to yourself. Expand your kingdom. Use Maranatha. Use us and our spheres of influence to draw many others into your kingdom for your glory. So, Lord, we thank you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.